This podcast is made possible by Napa Valley Wine Academy, America's premier wine school, with locations across the United States and online. Become a recognized expert and join the wine community and gain the confidence to do what you love with the winner of the WSET and Riedel Global Wine Educator of the Year Award. Listeners of this podcast enjoy a special 5% discount on any Napa Valley Wine Academy classes when they use the code NVWA podcast at the time of enrollment. That code again is NVWA podcast. For more information on all the courses offered, visit NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. That's NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. I moved to the French Laundry. So the first time that they needed a sommelier was when they were not quite five years old. They'd always had the service staff do the wine. And so they finally said, you know what? We are a internationally recognized as maybe the best restaurant in the world. Maybe we should have a sommelier. So I interviewed for that and became the sommelier there. And I stayed there for about 14 months. From Napa Valley Wine Academy, it's the stories behind wine, a podcast dedicated to the stories, people, places, and history that influenced the world of wine. I'm Christian Ogenfuss, and in this episode, I sit down with Dan Dawson, a California native and Napa local who has worn many hats in the wine business. Dan shares his unique journey in the wine business from how he got started out as a server in a restaurant in Davenport, Iowa, to becoming Thomas Keller's first sommelier at the world-famous French Laundry in Yonville, and finally, to launching his own online wine recommendation site. This is Dan's story. I am Dan Dawson. I am a longtime Napa Valley resident. I've worn many hats in Napa Valley, best known for being the owner and wine merchant at Backroom Wines in downtown Napa. I am now a wine advisor and wine recommendation guy. That sounds really exciting. The wine recommendation guy. I like that. So tell me, before we get to that new development, and you're right, most people would know you as Dan, the guy from Backroom Wine. How did you get started in the wine business, the early years? What drew you to want to work in wine? Sure. Yeah. Do you have uh, three or four days? Let's get started. <laughs> yeah. Just letting everyone know this will be a multi-episode show. <laughs> it all started as a young Caucasian man, and it really started in the restaurant business. One of my first jobs where I really fell in love with hospitality was in my hometown of Eureka, California. I was a dining room captain, so did flambe chef cooking, and I was supposed to do wine service, but I was scared to death, by the way. I was 20 years old or 19 years old and wouldn't open a bottle of wine, but I did get a love for the restaurant business. And so from there, I decided that I wanted to be like the chef owner guy. And so I started along that path. I went to University of Nevada, Las Vegas for hotel restaurant management. And then from there, I did a chef's apprenticeship in San Francisco. Then I moved to the Midwest to sort of find my roots, work with some family. And it's there that I started getting an interest in wine. And then in 1992, I moved to Napa Valley and really got involved in wine. So it was really a progression of restaurant chef owner to deciding I didn't want to do the restaurant, but I wanted to be an entrepreneur to move into a wine merchant. What was it like working in, in the restaurant scene in the early days? Because I think a lot of people have romanticized working in a restaurant, right, from a service or from a kitchen standpoint. Right. Tell me a little bit about what that looked like when you started out. 
it involved a lot of uh, polyester, including the ties and the red lion name tags, that's for sure. So there was a lot of sweating involved. And you said flames were involved too, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, there were. There was melting polyester going around and the smell of it, I can still smell that. It was camaraderie. It was sort of like those funny kind of restaurant politics that people who've worked in most restaurants kind of know about. And that there was a lot of energy involved. There was a lot of teamwork involved. And there was a lot of being... 18 or 19 years old with not a very strong food background, there was, even though it was a red lion fine dining place, there was a realization that there was like interesting food out there for a first step. It really meant something to me. And along the way, where did your interest for wine build? Did that just come in as a natural progression with the food and working in the restaurant business? Or did you see, hey, that's a, maybe a great way to increase the tip money to increase the average check price by adding wine? Tell me a little bit about how you discovered wine. So the wine discovery really started when I moved to Davenport, Iowa in 1991. I have family. My mom and dad are from Iowa. And I moved from San Francisco to Davenport, Iowa. And if you could find that other person out there in the universe who did that same thing, then let me know. I'd like to meet him or her. So I ended up moving there because I did have family there. And I decided that I'm a California guy through and through. I wanted to move, but I knew I was going to come back deep down. And so I ended up getting to know family in Davenport, Iowa, which is on the Mississippi. It's the Quad Cities, mm -hmm. if you know where that is. Sure do. Been there, believe it or not. Moline, Illinois is one of the Quad Cities, right? Moline, it is. Yeah. yeah. Davenport, Rock Island, Moline, Bettendorf. Okay. Okay. Bettendorf, great name. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> So I got a job at the Davenport Country Club, which was a dining club in a 12-story hotel overlooking the Mississippi River. And that's really where I got an interest in wine. So a couple things that I really remember really well, kind of crazy how clear some of these visions are. There was one server who was there, a smart person. They have a chiropractic school there. So a lot of people were studying to be chiropractors. And he was saying... Oh, oh my goodness, cake bread, Chardonnay. That's the best wine ever. Everybody should drink cake bread. I get all my customers to drink cake bread. I'd never heard of cake bread before the server told me about it, but I just like thought about it. Cake, bread, Chardonnay. That's got to be the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> and when I did taste it, I really did like it. And so that kind of got me interested. I also remember that members really gravitated towards Vouvray. Mm -hmm. There was a Vouvray on the list. I had no idea what that was or why they really liked it. But one of the maitre d's said, everybody orders Vouvray. So now I know after the fact that it was probably a very nice Vouvray with high residual sugar or certainly noticeable. And a lot of the palates gravitated towards that. So kind of got interested there too. That's interesting because usually when you talk to people in the Midwest or actually anywhere in the U.S. when they talk about the top sellers on a restaurant wine list, I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who says Vouvray was one of the top sellers, especially in Quad Cities. So especially in Quad Cities, but yeah, it just had an affinity. Another wine that had a great affinity was White Zinfandel, of course. And so this was my very first upsell in the wine business, and I really think it has something to do with me deciding, yeah, this is kind of cool. So there were two White Zinfandels on the list, Sutter Home and Deloach. And back then, so this is 1991, 1992, and Deloach was privately owned, and they made a really nice white Zinfandel. Residual sugar was there, but on the lower side. And I like to, to say it was a true wine, an honest wine. And so I was the maitre d' 
there, by the way. And so, you know, I hosted people, sat them down, I was wearing the tuxedo and the whole thing. And I would go up to some of the members. They would say, I'll take the Sutter Home White Zinfandel. And I would say, the Deloach White Zinfandel is very nice. And it's only $3 more. We're talking like $14 versus $17 a bottle. And they would say, okay, Dan, we'll take the Deloach. And I would pour it for them and their eyes lit up. And I was just like, wow, that's kind of cool. And that got you started. Probably the momentum started for you, right? It probably did. Yeah. It probably did. So you're in Davenport, in the Quad Cities. You've got California as your home. How do you make the transition back to California? Because you hear a lot of people leave Mm -hmm. California unable to return because of economic reasons. Tell me about your return. So it was 1992. I had survived one winter. and It wasn't the harshest winter, but it was a winter. I didn't want to do another one. (laughs) <laughs> one winter was enough. <laughs> and my parents laughed at me when, you know, called on the phone since they were from Iowa and they'd done like 30 of them or whatever. So I had a very good friend, one of my best friends still, who uh, lived in Napa, who worked for Gallo at the time. And he had a couch for me to crash on and an invitation to come out. And he said, you know what? You're a restaurant person. You really should be someplace like Napa Valley. So I loaded up my Honda Accord and drove right out here. So crashed on a couch and started my Napa journey. What did it look like? You said mid-90s, right? Mid-90s is when you hit? Early 90s. Early 90s. 1992. What did the valley look like? Because probably a lot different than it looks today. Yonville had a little bit of a nice small town vibe with a couple of nice restaurants. Besides Compadres, I'm not remembering what else was there. St. Helena was cute. Calistoga had that same kind of cowboy vibe with some nice restaurants as well. And Napa Valley was really dead. (laughs) It was, yeah. A lot of us have heard what downtown Napa was like in the early 1990s. And that's what I remember about it. Like everything shut down at like eight o'clock, a few places to eat. Right. So it had a, a ways to go. So upon your return into California, you land in Napa and you knew you wanted to do something with wine or were you at this point still aligned to the restaurant? Yeah, world. yeah, still the restaurant manager or chef manager path. And I arrived on a Friday, hung out with my friend, slept for the night. Next day, he invited me to a party with a bunch of locals and people in the restaurant business. And one of the people there said, you should check out All Seasons Cafe and Restaurant. I think that they're hiring right now for servers. So All Seasons up in Calistoga. Yeah, yeah. I knew that restaurant quite well. Mm-hmm. And so the next day, I go up there. I meet the two owners. Gail and Alex. And this is a restaurant which is still going. They had their 40th anniversary and it just keeps going and going and going. It's like the Everlast Bunny. They're right there across the street from Brennan's. Is that on the corner? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then Hydro Grill, which they also own, is across the other street also. So I go there. I fill out an application. I interview with Gail Keller and then Alex Dierkeising, Gail and Alex, husband, wife, he gives me a wine test that he gives to so many people. And I just do okay about it. I still remember that I botched the question, red burgundy and Pinot Noir, what do they have in common or something like that? And I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so then I got a job serving tables there. And I was just reading some quote that somebody said is like, Some of the smallest things that happen to you can end up being very large. 
And that was really very significant because I ended up from waiting tables there to getting involved in their wine department, which was very strong in the 1990s. And then after three or four years, running the wine shop and wine department for all seasons, starting in 1994, 1995. And from there, I quickly knew that that's where my career path was going to be. So how do you make that progression from serving to running the wine program and running the wine shop? Does someone leave and the owner points at you and says, <laughs> Dan, time to step up, take over? Or did you express an interest? Tell me about how that came about. It was old school. I was serving tables. And so I would come in a few minutes or half an hour before my shift. And I would go into the wine shop and I would go get the razor blade and I would cut the boxes because it was box display. And I would go and sweep up, wasn't asking for any money or anything. All that I was really asking for was a little bit of attention when I asked questions about wines or to taste some wine. And the person who ran the wine shop at the time is famous in the wine industry. His name is John Wetlaufer. And John Wetlaufer and Helen Turley are married. And so back in the early 90s, Helen Turley was the star wine consultant making lots of very, very good Cabernets and other wines. They're now just dedicated to Marcusan, I believe. But anyway, so John Wetlaufer was the uh, wine shop manager there, and I would ask him questions, and he was very much the reluctant teacher. He didn't want to be bothered by this kid asking questions, but he begrudgingly did help me out with tasting wines and things. And so he wasn't like the best guru, if you will, but he did pretty well for me and I made it work, you know, very well. And so after he left, there were two other wine buyers. And then back to your question about how it all worked. Eventually, when one person left, I just walked in and I said, okay, I've worked in the wine shop for over a year. I know what I'm doing. Guess what? I'm taking over the wine shop. <laughs> Try to stop me. <laughs> And after that, it was about a four-year run of working as a wine merchant. And that was when I really got comfortable with wine and um, confident in my palate, in talking about wine, in running a business of wine and making a living on it. So was it at this point that you decided, hey, I probably want to work for myself. I want to take a stab at this. Or did that come later? It came a little bit later. So a few hops from all seasons was I moved to the French Laundry. So the first time that they needed a sommelier was when they were not quite five years old. They'd always had the service staff do the wine. And so they finally said, you know what? We are a internationally recognized as maybe the best restaurant in the world. Maybe we should have a sommelier. So I interviewed for that and became the sommelier there. And I stayed there for about 14 months and then from there, I did a few other things. I worked at Dina DeLuca in their wine department when they were very early in the evolution of Dina DeLuca wine. And then I worked in a couple of other places, which were kind of difficult, that made me decide that I wanted to work for myself at that point. So we're getting towards 2002 when I created and opened Backroom Wines. At this time, 2002, Napa's still a sleepy place, right? It is sleepy. And I'm talking about downtown Napa is still a sleepy, right. sleepy place. And many people just driving right by it to get to wine country, get up valley to the wineries and environments further north. Did you already know that you wanted to focus on international wines when you opened your shop? And yes. obviously, you always had a very strong international selection. So one would ask, what are you thinking at this point? You're in arguably one of the world's best places for Cabernet. And the people coming here are very much 
looking for either Cabernet, Chardonnay, right. American wines. And here you are, 2002, in a town that really isn't vibrant yet, opening up an international wine shop. Right. Was that hard? Or did people tell you you were crazy? Or It was not hard for me because I had a lot of experience doing it already. And back in 2002, it was under 1,000 square foot space. So the overhead was not crazy high. So I was very confident from day one that I was going to be able to make it work. And I did so much of my homework ahead of time also. But as far as the demographic goes, I'd had many years of experience in finding and cultivating people who loved wine around the country and to sell them the Napa Cabernets and other varieties and ship it to them. Up in Calistoga at all seasons, I did see this wine culture of really winemakers, people in wine production who had an interest in wines of the world, so they didn't have a house palate. They knew that they couldn't be myopic as far as tasting wine, and so sold a lot of Burgundy and Rhone Valley wines. Other imports too, but 90% French probably. So I knew that they were there, and I knew that a lot of them lived in Napa. So the sales breakdown for Backroom Wines, 2002 to 2005 or whatever, was mail order, 75%, 65%, and then local foot traffic made up the rest. Visitor foot traffic was really, really low. And I knew that that was to be expected. Not knowing where downtown Napa was going to go in the next 10, 20 years. I mean, it's exploded, but didn't really know that at the time. And then over time, I sold the wine shop last year in 2017, where that visitor foot traffic buying the really nice Napa wines came up and made a higher and higher percentage of the total sales. So you said when you started out, you did your homework. Often when you interview entrepreneurs, they say, I just took a stab at it. I just tried it and it worked out or it didn't work out. Tell me, what did the homework look like? Like, what were you when you're deciding you're going to start your own shop? What are some of the things that you considered and pondered on? Certainly. And just the way that you said that made me think that the juxtaposition of doing the wine shop versus what I'm doing now is huge. (laughs) So we'll talk about that in a few, I guess. My homework back then was establishing strong, friendly relationships with some really good customers that I had where we were friends on a personal level, some people who really helped make me in the wine business at the very beginning. And so there was some people who really wanted to follow me and keep supporting me. There was about a year of selling wine and marketing myself as a wine merchant before I even opened it. And not selling a ton of wine, but running a little bit of wine through Cal Wine which is still around also. So, you know, I was able to sell wine and get a little commission from Cal Wine. And there was also a really fantastic exercise with a small business or a Napa Small Business Development who met with Ray Kimball over and over again. And he just beat me up like crazy to write a business plan. Okay. <laughs> he made me rewrite that thing three or four times until it was really a powerful and useful document for me to steer myself for, I'd say, the six months before opening to a year after opening to keep an eye on that and look at projections and like what I really think is going to work out well. What was the hardest period for you? Was it the early years when you're just starting out or was it later on when you started to grow? It was later on when I started to grow. The only time I remember actually crying about it was when I was moving from my original location of 900 square feet and low rent, low overhead 
to the location where Backroom Wines is now at the corner of First and Main, which was 2,400 square feet, like real rent Mm -hmm. and like killer overhead. Mm -hmm. And with that, more of a commitment of bringing on staff and having food and the experience. And this was, I cried (laughs) (laughs) in like spring 2008, March 2008. And the crash was about to happen, but it was looking pretty rocky at the time too. yeah, And so that whole period, like the beginning of the recession and taking on this big nut was the only time that I think that I really, really worried about it. How did you overcome that? Did you just know it was still the right decision to have done that? And yeah, we'd love to hear how you get over that because a lot of people didn't make it through the other side of the recession. Right. Well, probably because I still had less staff. The wine shop was still a model where I could run it with one other full-time person and then a little bit of other help on the side, whether it's my wife or friends and all. I think that I kept the labor really, really low by working a lot to sort of like calm things down. So the overhead besides the rent was manageable and it was still selling wine. We talk about the luxury goods that they don't get as hard a hit. And then we talk about how when the economy is down, people still need to drink. So keep those two principles really helped me out, I think. And so I didn't sell as much. I didn't do as well 2008, 2009, 2010 as I would have otherwise. But I still did pretty well. And I was definitely in the black. In your wine shop, for listeners that might not be familiar with it, Again, we're in Napa Valley, and most people's expectation would be that you walk into a wine shop and it would focus 100% on the wines of Napa Valley or California. You had a very nice international selection and really thoughtfully curated. And one of the fun and interesting things to discover every time you walked in were the shelf talkers, the tasting notes that you wrote, right? right? Tell me a little bit about that. Did that help sell your wines? Did that replace you talking to people? (laughs) Or was it just a great conversation starter? And then I guess a follow-up question to that is, a lot of them used humor and a lot of them used eloquent, poetic language. Talk to me a little bit about where do you get that from? Where do you get that talent to write like that? Sure. So Chris is talking about all the wines that I had there and the spirits have their own individual tasting note, which I wrote all of them. So if you can see a thousand different products and they all need their own tasting note, that's where eloquence versus humor versus goofy to somber, they all come into play because you have to write a thousand different tasting notes that are live at one time and have them all be a little bit different from each other. So there is that consideration. My skill as a writer just comes naturally. My mother's an English teacher. (laughs) That helps. (laughs) Maybe that helps. (laughs) She didn't help me with the wines, you know. (laughs) So she had to help me with the writing. But just writing was something that came naturally to me. And you had fun doing it? I did enjoy doing it. Because it was a lot of work. When I first began, do you remember the original store, the small store that they were just, I mean, truly handwritten? Yeah. When I moved over to the large store, I decided that for a number of different reasons, I needed to print them out. So then they became a little bit more classy looking. So back when they were handwritten, I think it was just a way to think in in my mind to take care of describing it so I would not have to. But as you mentioned, that was not the case. It really was something to draw people out to ask questions, to draw me into the conversation, things like, you say banana, what's that in wine? I don't taste banana. Is there really banana in there? 
or somebody who's a little bit more advanced saying, you say that it's minerally in this wine, but how minerally? Those types of questions. So it would start a discussion and it would create a relationship that in long term probably brought more loyal customers into the store. I know there's probably a lot of listeners who think it's my dream to own my own wine shop. I would get to talk about wine all day, sell wine. You were there a lot. I mean, it was a lot of work. You really personified that business, right? And I think when people walked in, they had the expectation of, I'm here to see Dan and anyone else (laughs) who stood there, they're like, Uh where's Dan? Right. Was that hard for you? Is owning a wine shop an easy rainbows and unicorn business <laughs> or is it is there a hard side to it? Too? Yeah, there's definitely a hard side and it's not really black and white. It's sort of like the good parts, the white parts are really fun. You're doing a tasting with a very talented winemaker. You're selling wine to somebody who's like really jazzed to be there. That's great. The darker parts are more grays than blacks for the most part. It's just all of the hard work that is involved in doing the stocking, the cleaning, all the bookwork and everything. And I pretty much did it all myself. And so it was really just the grind of doing that and getting back to how I survived the recession and still did pretty well was still keeping that as part of my processes, doing my control. It was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it was something that when I decided to sell backroom wines, that was one of the main reasons that I personally realized that I was not able to have other people do it and be totally happy with it. And so if that's the case, then maybe I should go do something else. You launched a successful business. And again, you take it from 900 square feet to 2,400 square feet from a little side street in Napa to a main street in Napa, and you grow quite a large following. And you were very successful with it. What's it like when you've grown something It's almost like a child, right? You've reared it and now you have to let it go. Is that a hard thing to do? Is that a hard thing to step back from a business that you've poured your lifeblood into? I don't have the final answer to that question because it was just over a year ago. And so the first, say, half year was just schools out for summer (laughs) type of thing. (laughs) But then after that, you start missing some of the relationship, some of the empowerment that comes with having it. And just things that were so easy to do, like people wanting to show you wine, (laughs) for example, invitations to all sorts of like great events. And so with my new venture, those still exist, but not to the point that it did from a 15-year-old successful wine shop is going to be. And so I'm not sure. There's definitely not ever going to be any like regret. I did the right thing that was right for me and my family. There's no doubt about it. But I'll have the final answer to that question probably not for another couple of years about the total peace that I have with it because it really was what my wife said. It was my identity for a long time. Yeah. You start a new venture, right? You've started a new venture, and I'd love for you to describe to the listeners what that is. But before we get to that, was this new idea already in your mind as you're looking to transition and as you're looking to sell your business? Are you like, I can't wait to, to start this new <laughs> thing. I'm ready to move on. Or right. or did that come organically after you sold your business? It came after, definitely after. All the energies were to sell the business and then just to have a nice long break. So the whole process of starting Dan Dawson's Wine Advisor was step A, 
do I want to work for somebody else or do I want to work for myself right now? And then answer that question that I still had that entrepreneur aspect in me. So I still want to do something for myself. And then wine B, what can I do? What am I skilled at? So tasting wine, evaluating wine, communicating about wine, whether it's wine writing or wine presenting with things that I really, really liked. And so, and people really liked that. They liked to read my information and they liked it when I would talk about wines as well. And so I took all the parts that I still really liked and was very much enthused to do and then removed the parts that I didn't want to do for a good long while, which was like the actual sales and the shipping and all the mechanizations that come with the actual sales of the wines that uh, just wanted to stay away from that for a while. And so that's what I do with Dan Dawson's Wine Advisor is I taste and write about wines. Everything that I write about, I recommend very highly. And I speak to wines that really over-deliver for the price. You make it sound like this process happened. You sell and a light bulb goes off. This is what I'm going to do. I'm, I can imagine it was probably a couple of iterations of fine-tuning to, to start Dan Dawson Wine Advisor. What was that process like? You kind of hinted at it before that you started mm -hmm. Backroom Wines with a business plan that someone hounded you to do right. uh, many versions of until it was perfect. Was it the same process for Dan Dawson, the wine advisor, or was it much more organic? It was much more organic. So I knew how I was going to operate backroom wines, basically the same way that I operated All Seasons Wine Shop for five years. And so all of the same processes, the same types of customers, everything broken down. And then the business plan, get a little bit of loan from my folks, and away we go. This was just an idea Dan Dawson's Wine Advisor. So it's based on the internet. It's selling information. It's selling subscriptions. It's selling thoughts originally. And I just like figured, well, I've got some good thoughts. I've got some good opinions. People will pay a little bit of money for that, right? So it's not that easy. So I'd never done it. And so selling your thoughts, I knew was going to be a challenge, but I thought that I could do it. And it grew, but not enough to support myself. And so I've already made a pretty significant change on it to see how it goes after that. So the business plan was there and I look at it and I refer to it and I use it, but still some of the numbers that I pulled out, the projections for Dan Dawson's wine advisor came from my behind as much as anything else and not from any really real experience. You start your first business, which a lot of people dream of doing, owning their own wine shop and selling wines and being able to work with wines on a daily basis. And you transition into another business that a lot of people aspire to do too, right? Is write about wines and share their opinions about wines. And is that hard? Because there are a lot of voices right. in the wine business. There are a lot of opinions to be heard. And tell me a little bit about your thought process behind that to get into that space and how you see a lot of these other voices. And when I mean other voices, anyone from Robert Parker to James Lobby to James Suckling to on and on and on, right? Right. You take a little bit of a different approach at it. I do. Tell me about your approach and how it's different and why it's different. Well, I want to write about wines in a more practical manner for the consumer. So the criteria for being a wine that I recommend are A, it needs to be like available in California, like you can find it, like maybe not across the street from you, but you can look on the internet, you can look on Wine Searcher and you can find it in California. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about that vintage, that very wine. Value is really important to me. 
And it's not just an under $20 wine, but it could be a $50, $60 Napa Cabernet as well. And people really appreciate that. So instead of having like a best buy section, like the value wine department or whatever, I encompass all of my recommendations under that umbrella. And so I say more often wines that over deliver for the price more than value wines. And so I quantify it with a little simple math for an equation, like a quality price ratio type of number. And then more importantly to me, I speak about that, like why this is a very good value. I know that it's a $40 Russian River Valley Pinot Noir, but I've had a lot of these wines that are more money than that, and they're very good. So I keep messaging that to my readers that this is a wine which is better than a lot of wines twice the price. And this is why, and you can find it. You having fun with what you're doing? I am. And having more fun now, particularly, especially with the pivot, as somebody who is helping me out likes to use. Yeah. I did a pivot and it's made it more fun. Mm. And so what that change is, is when I launched the business March 1st, it was a $50 subscription to get my wine reviews. And it was only two weeks ago that I finally made the decision that there's a lot of people who are very talented giving wine reviews, even though mine are very different, it still gets put into that big ocean of wine thoughts. So mine are very different. So why not let more people know how different they are? And so all of my wine reviews are now free. And I've started creating a really, really strong and cool benefit package for members. So now what the membership provides is there are currently 13 really good wineries in Napa and Sonoma that as a member, you can go visit and have a complimentary tasting. Hmm. There are wineries that I have already recommended that I have a relationship with, and they agree to give a very significant discount on the wines if you know as to members of Dan Dawson's Wine Advisor. There's another kind of fun event which involves me having appointments with winemakers to go do wine tastings, like barrel tastings and just talk about wines. And I call it road trip. Mm -hmm. And these are ones that any members can just like email me or call me says, yeah, that's great. I can make it. And so can come along. And I mean, that's invaluable. Such events are really, really cool. So I'm doing that at Larkmead soon with Yannick Rousseau at Rye Rousseau. Uh, grounded Wine Company. And then another one that I'm doing with you at Napa Valley Wine Academy is I'm doing tasting events that are going to start in August. And so for that one, it's a discounted price for Dawson Wine Advisor members. So we're going to start with $20 tastings of Pinot Noirs one time, sparkling wines another, and my members get a $10 discount. So $10 for a fantastic tasting. So it's these kinds of benefit packages that I'm able to provide just because of my long-term relationships with people in the wine business, such as yourself, Mm -hmm. that my partners are really excited to do because it brings new customers to them, my members who are definitely very much interested in wine. And so with that ability, so why not package that all up? And so people ask me, so now what do I do? And so I say, well, I'm a wine reviewer or wine critic. And so that's true. But now for what I'm selling, people ask what I do. Tell me what you think of this. The best one I have so far is I am a wine experience gateway. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. And the gate's always open. (laughs) The gate's always open. (laughs) Wow. It sounds like you've really been able to take your career, 
progress it to a point where you were, were able to deconstruct it, peel away the parts that you might not have enjoyed so much, put it back right. together, and really craft it for yourself something new that really leverages what you're good at, right? right? Communicating about wine, talking to people, building relationships, and not having to do some of the other things that you don't enjoy, right? Schlepping the boxes, right. stocking, cleaning, worrying about the margin, worrying about carrying inventory. How does that change you as a husband, as a father, as a friend? How has that impacted your <laughs> your life? It's definitely, I mean, huge. The time that I have for my family now is night and day, but it's amazing. But I mean, one experience that I have noticed over and over again, just the difference between me and just a little snapshot of a day. So I would have a friend come in into the wine shop and it could be somebody who I love and I haven't seen for a year, but I just had that small business merchant on the go twitch about me, yeah. you know, sort of trying to say, okay, I can give you 60 seconds of undivided <laughs> attention and then then I'm looking around, so who else can I help? Right. And it was tough. I really stopped liking that about me. And so now people who I like, I love, I don't even know, but I'm just sort of interested in, I can give them five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever. It doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, sure, I'm busy, but I can really understand people better. And it sounds kind of weird because I did understand people's interest in wine and what they loved about wine, but I wasn't really caring as much anymore about who the people really were. And I've already gotten that back. That's great. What advice would you have for someone starting out Someone who's doing something they don't love and want to do something that they love. They want to sell wine. They want to be around wine. What recipe would you give them? What advice would you give them right. for someone who wants to start a wine shop, who wants to start to reviewing wines? Getting experience in that trade, I think, is really invaluable. I mean, there's different ways to be successful in a wine shop environment. So everybody needs to find their own way, what is going to work for them. And that's just a process of getting to know yourself a little bit more. So that is definitely really, really important. I know that there's a lot of people who are sort of on the base level. I mean, the most that they've ever done is have wine tasting parties at their house. And they were sort of like me in 1991 that I heard Vouvray was really liked, but I didn't know the grape. And so just getting a base foundation in a good wine class, mm -hmm. just to sort of like understand all the important wine regions and the grapes and just to sort of like get comfortable in the environment is a really, really good thing to do. Mm -hmm. But then over the long term, it's the practical experience, I think is really, really important. Right. Not too dissimilar from being an athlete, right? You have to put in the time, you have to put in the work to get the results. Yeah. That, that, there is no shortcut. That's right. I didn't perfect my three-point shot until <laughs> <laughs> years and years of experience until I could beat Steph Curry you know, in the three-point <laughs> contest. <laughs> what makes the wine world so special, so interesting? Why do people want to be around wine, work with wine? What is it? You don't hear the same thing about any other consumer product, really, maybe other than kind of the food scene. But what is it about wine? I can just throw a few things up against the wall <laughs> and just sort of see. So there's the bringing together of people about it that I think really resonates to people. That's the soulful part about it. I think that a lot of people really love wine because they had that experience 
maybe at their own dining room table with great people and some great wine, or maybe it was in Italy or France, and they sort of had that magical moment that really touched their soul. There's the unending variability of wine. And sure, there's the vintages are always different, so you can always have to learn about it, the next vintage. But then there's also the learning aspect about wine. I don't know how many people in this world know everything about wine, but I don't think that there's very many. In whatever level they are, let's say they're like super duper high level, they're the first ones to profess that I still need to learn more about wine. And so there's just unending education involved in it. And there's a lot of people that just really love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the famous line from the actress in Sideways. She just said, just because it's so effing good. (laughs) (laughs) And people just love the flavor. I mean, that's why, that's one of the reasons that I really love wine is because I like to drink it and smell it so much. So if you want to know more about Dan Dawson and what he's up to, the link for his website will be at the bottom of the show notes here. And we'll right. also have Jan's recommendations for you to view there. Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure to yeah, have you on the you. show. And we look to having you back as well. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for joining us this week on the Stories Behind Wine. If you would like to suggest an interview subject or show topic, please email us at sbh at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Again, that email address is sbh at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. If you like what you've heard, we hope that you'll visit our website, NapaValleyWineAcademy.com forward slash podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. We'd also really appreciate a positive review on iTunes. It really helps out. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous episodes and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NapaValleyWineAcademy.com. Join us next time for another episode of the Stories Behind Wine. Until then, thank you for listening.